Hope you all are doing very well at the end of this wonderful spring break week for many. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm a pastor here at Neartown. Um, as Russell mentioned the other week, he waited to make fun of me uh, for when I was gone. So uh, he accused me of liking disc golf and said that it was nerdy. He's partially right, and that's fine. It's not entirely nerdy. It is what I enjoy. It is what I love. I have been playing for almost 15 years now, and I've gotten pretty decent at it. Now, many of you say, what is disc golf? It's very similar to golf, except uh, the, the idea is the same. But instead of a ball being put down the fairway, you use different discs. And then instead of different clubs, there are actually different discs that do things based on uh, distance and the conditions in front of you. And instead of a little hole in the ground that you put the ball in, it's a big basket with chains. So uh, I go out and I play. And I have played and I love playing. Now, disc golf, uh, just like golf with the golf clubs, there are a lot of different disc manufacturers. Each company has their own line of discs. And each of these discs come in different weights. And each of these come in different colors. So all of that to say... There are a lot of discs, a lot of discs, and you'll go out and, and you'll meet people, either before a tournament or you'll go play a friendly round, and there's always this one guy, and the one guy, he's going to, he knows everything about every disc. He knows how fast it's supposed to go. He knows how it's supposed to act in certain conditions. He's got it all memorized, and he'll tell you all about the discs in your bag and all the ones in his and all the ones of everybody all around. And you think, wow, this guy knows his stuff. He knows how to play. I mean, look at this knowledge of all of the equipment. He's going to get out there, and I am going to learn a lot when I go out and play. Inevitably, I step to the course with the guy. And he's terrible. He's terrible. He had all this head knowledge about all of these discs, but the knowledge about the equipment did not translate in how to play because that actually matters when playing a game is actually how you do it. Do you have anybody like that in your life? They, they are all talk, little game. Uh, the, their interest in something and the passion really is only an inch deep. Because sometimes I feel I'm worried for the church in America. I'm worried for our church. I'm worried that somebody might accuse us of the same thing in regards to our faith. See, we're passionate enough to post Bible verses to our Facebook wall. And we're passionate enough that if brought up in conversation, we might say, yep, we're Christian. Yep, we go to Neartown. But do our lives show that same level of passion? Would somebody look at the life we live and say, that's consistent with their stated passion? Now, we have been in a sermon series for the last few weeks called Experience. We have been discussing what it might look to actually experience real-time peace, day-to-day, to experience the peace of life with Jesus Christ on an everyday basis. So today we're going to look at being passionate. How does being passionate, how if, 
If I am going to live passionately, how is that going to expand the peace in my life? How is that going to let me see peace on a day-to-day basis? Will you bow your head with me for a second? Lord, I thank you so much that you have given us your word, that you have set the path for us. Lord, let us see who you are. Let us see what you have done. And then let us live out of who you have made us to be. This is all from your grace, Lord. We lean wholly on you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, at the outset, I want us to have a working definition of passionate. See, being passionate, it differs from having an interest in something. I have a great interest in my Indiana Pacers. I have an extreme interest, as you can tell, about disc golf. But I have a passion for raising my children to follow Christ. See, one, one section, these, this interest, it's a hobby. It's something you do in your downtime. You are interested in it. Well, the other, it's your life's ambition. It's something that you redirect all other things in your life to make sure that you accomplish this one thing. True passion is an all-of-life ordeal. So for our definition, what we're talking about today in regards to the Christian life, being passionate and our faith, being passionate is a life that embraces the proclaimed faith in Christ through obedience to his ways. One more time. Being passionate is a life that embraces the proclaimed faith in Christ through obedience to his ways. It is at once both verbal and visible. It's stated on the tongue with confidence, but it's visible in the life through actions. Okay, go with me to the book of James, chapter 1. Andrew magnificently read it earlier. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, Going to be in chapter 1, verses 16 through 25. We're going to look at this and discover how God, through James, describes what true passion looks like. Now, if you would like a Bible and you don't have one, just hold up your hands. Uh, An assistant of mine will get it to you. Just hold it up high, and they'll get it right your way. Now, right before this, in this passage... Uh, James has stated that trials are going to come. And when the trials come, count them with joy. Count your trials that come your way with joy. Don't see them as the most awful thing in the world, but actually look at them as something that God is in charge of and is using to shape us. Now he goes on to say that these trials are not sent to us by God because he's being mean. And they're not to be thrown back at God like he's the enemy and he's trying to tempt us. No. Instead, he says, let's go to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is gracious. He is consistent And he is good. So even the trials that come into our lives are within his control. He is good and he gives good gifts. And he hasn't wavered in his care for people. So even though you have trials in your life, this is not something that God is, oh no, I didn't didn't see that happening. I'm so sorry. No, 
He knows it's there and he's working in it. He gives good gifts. Here's the thing. Though the world around us, everything in our life goes through cycles. It goes through changes. God does not. He is constant. So he is good. He is faithful. He is consistent. We can trust the one who remains the same. Okay, so we, we're looking at this passage, and at the very beginning, James is saying right here, well, who is God? He is good. He is consistent. He is faithful. We can trust him. So he establishes who God is right at the outset here. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So out of this trustworthy God, out of his trustworthy character, he acted in our interest. He acted through his truth for us, and he made us new. Now, what I said at the beginning, uh, we started off with, well, who is God? And God has already been laid out who he is. He is good. He is consistent. Well, what has he done? James runs over it really quickly at the verse of beginning of the beginning of the verse of 18. He brought us forth by the word of truth. He has just waxed really quickly over the fact that God, in his love for us, has sent his son. That son came and took our punishment on the cross. He has freed us. He has freed us. He has set us free to not live in that sin, but he has made us new. And because we are new, there's something that he wants in us. Okay, well, we'll get to that, what he wants in us part. But what he has done, is he, James is already answering the question, who is God? Well, he is good. He is consistent. He is faithful. What has he done? He sent his son to love us, to care for us. And as it says here, through his son, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we should be a kind of first fruits. Now, first fruits, this word... It's a combination of a temple terminology and farming terminology. Farmers, uh, back in biblical times, they would go out, they would either farm or they would have their animals, their livestock. And when harvest time would come, or time to slaughter the animals for food, they would take a portion of that, usually a tithe or a tenth, and they would take that first fruit, first fruit, you can see where they get the term. And they would take that first fruit and they would take it to the temple and they would give it to God. They say, this is yours. We dedicate it to you. It doesn't matter if that was the best. Actually, that was good. God wanted the best. And he would take these first fruits. These farmers would take these first fruits and say, God, this is yours. James is making the comparison here to say, we as Christians are a kind of first fruit. We have been planted by God. We are a new crop. As believers in Christ, we are the new crop. You see, we were over here. We were the old crop. We did not have Christ. We were stuck in our sin. And through Christ, he has made us new. We are something different now. We are something new, and he wants to grow us into something better. We are a kind of first fruits that are to be dedicated to God to be focused on him, and we have this new identity. We have this new life. That's who we are. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
this old life that God has taken us from, he actually has literally taken us from it. We are not stuck there anymore. And he says, you are new. You are going to be my first fruits. You are going to be this new creation. Because there's a new creation coming. And it's being renewed all around us. Now, let's jump to verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Here in verse 19, James exhorts Christians to act in a specific way. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. This is actually what Christians are to do. See, our old life, the old us, the one that Christ has saved us from, this old crop, we used to fly off the handle. We used to blow up at everybody whenever we felt like it. We used to say, you know, I'm from all the angry countries. I just can't help it. That's, but that's the old way. See, Christ is asking us in this, this unique way, in this specific situation of how to control your tongue, he's saying, live new. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. We are to act differently. We are to live passionately in this new life. James makes it clear in regards to our tongues as first fruits, this is how are we to act. This is how we are to act. But why? He gives the answer. Verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The way we used to be when we got angry, we thought it was entirely normal just to get angry, blow up. But God has a new way for us in Jesus. Now, God's goal isn't to leave us there in this normal, destructive anger place. He has a goal for us. He has a purpose. In verse 20, you can see it says it does not produce. So your actions are going to produce something. There is, there is something always being developed by what we do. We are building towards something. And James is saying anger of man does not produce. It will not result in. We, as the first fruits, are to be growing towards the righteousness of God. It says it right there at the end of 20. It will not produce the righteousness of God. This is our goal. This is our aim. He wants to make us new. He has already made us new in Christ, and He wants to grow in us through the Spirit a life that models what He wants, the righteousness of God. But to grow into Christ-likeness, we need to get rid of the sin that's in our life. Christ has already paid for it, but we need to deal with it. Verse 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. See, that old life needs to be seen as what it is. It's filthy. It's rampantly wicked. We need to get rid of the old life. What might, get, what might be lumped into old life? Some examples that came to mind this week. Escaping stress and problems through drugs, through alcohol, and addictive substances. Escaping stress and problems through entertainment like Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon binges. 
interacting with pornography, living with somebody like you're married to them, but you aren't yet married to them, speaking and acting in racist ways, chasing after money like it's your ultimate satisfaction, controlling or trying to control your children or your spouse like their possessions to own and not people to bless. Is anybody else uncomfortable yet? I know I am. Because these things, these describe the old ways. These describe the old ways. And this small sample list, it's not just full of things we quote-unquote struggle with. These are the sins that Christ wants to get rid of, uh, get rid from us, and these are the reasons that Christ came to save us, to clean us, and to make us his. Uh, This past week, I was reading an author by the name of Jonathan Dodson, and he said, quote, Modern Christians aren't known for putting distance between themselves and sin. We use the language of struggles. So it's popular to say, oh man, I'm really struggling with, insert thing here, drinking too much, lusting, envying, this is what he has listed. But what that often means is, like clothing, I'm putting on this sin. I'm really close to it, and I really kind of like it. I know I shouldn't, so I'm going to confess that I'm struggling with it so that I can still be near it and yet act like I don't like it. The theologian John Owen said, Be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. Be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. What does James say in regards to sin, in regards to this old life? In verse 21, what does he say? Put it away. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Repentance. It's not just saying, Jesus, I need you. That's a really good start. Repentance is walking away from the old ways and embracing a new habit of life, a new way of living that Christ has called us to, walking away. It's a 180 degree. That's repentance. That's leaving the old way and living a new way. Embrace the word that God has spoken to us in Jesus. Move on and be passionate. Be passionate in your new life with Christ. Verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who intently looks, at, looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away. And at once, at once, he forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. As Christians, we must must do what this faith is about. We cannot walk around being passionate about the newness that Christ brings us, what he has saved us from, if we are still living a life like he hasn't. And don't hear me wrong here. What I'm saying, what I'm talking about, these aren't really easy things to get away from. 
This is our lives. Our, our actions, this old life, that we've developed some pretty strong habits. And just to say, oh, we're new in Christ, well, I'll just walk away from all of it. I'm going to be perfect today. Good luck. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. But the thing is, sometimes when we're in the midst of it, when we're in the midst of our, our habitual sins, the ones that we do repeatedly, and we aren't confessing to God, and we actually don't in our life have any intention of changing. See, we get used to it. We get used to that life. And the thing is, there are people on the outside who are looking in, and they hear us say that we are Christians, and they hear us say that we want to be new. And we talk about this newness that Christ brings, and yet they look at our life, and they say, you know what? I see a whole lot of those sample sin list items happening. And they look at us, and they might think that we are as silly as somebody who checks themselves out in the mirror and then walks away and immediately forgets what we look like. That's crazy talk, right? That's crazy talk. Walk in the mirror, see what you look like, walk away, and completely forget it. But that's how others look at us as well. If we say we are new in Christ, we are whole in Christ, he has made me new, this is great, and we keep living like that's not true. We cannot have both ways. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus wants to make us new and see newness in it. And we must, with his help, get rid of those past sins and fully embrace this passionate life. Being passionate must be viewed as both word, so telling people about Jesus, about the work that Christ has done in you, and action, obediently following Christ's commands. Lived, these, it must be seen as, this is lived simultaneously as a singular expression of grace. Through Christ's grace, and that is his death on the cross, his raising from the dead, his gift to us of the Holy Spirit to actually live this life that he's given us. We are able to speak and live passionately. It must, it must, it must be seen as a possible reality that living a, a, a fluid life that embraces your word and your actions together, these must be seen as a possible reality at the hands of our Savior, not on our strength, at the hands of our Savior, because he is the one who has attained this for us. And it is never, ever, ever something that we can accomplish on our own. Remember, who is God? He is the one who is good, gracious, and consistent. What has he done? He has saved us on the cross. Who are we now in him? We are new. And it is only because it's possible through him that passionate Christians are normal people. It's only because it's through him are any of us able to do that? And because any of us are able to do that, we all can do that on his strength. Passionate Christians aren't superheroes. Passionate Christians aren't professional Christians who are paid to be passionate. They can be any one of us. Now, at this moment, I would like to bring up a friend, and I would like to bring up Rachel, and I would like to talk with her about her normal life. 
and about how she is living out her passionate faith. Please welcome up Rachel Alvarez. Okay, that's actually, Lauren's height is your perfect height, so well done. Okay, so Rachel, who are you? So that everybody knows who Good you are. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Good to see y'all. Y'all look nice. Um, so my name is Rachel Alvarez, or Raquel Alvarez, for Spanish speakers. Um, I, um, am, I grew up in Houston. Uh, after Houston, I moved to Austin, and I went to school at UT, Longhorns. Yeah. It's very quiet. <laughs> very quiet. <laughs> and I study social work there. Um, and yeah, that's who I am. Okay, so you studied social work. So now, what do you do for a living? So at the current moment, I am a social worker. I work with the YMCA. Um, I'm not a Sumba instructor. <laughs> I am a social worker there. They have a, a specific agency called YMCA International. And we work uh, directly with victims of human trafficking. Um, so that's my job. So what got you into that? Why, why this? Is there like any specific event or story that propelled you to take action and be in standing against human trafficking? Yeah, so I uh, traveled a lot. I, I did a lot of mission trips, studied abroad. And I was first exposed to human trafficking in Brazil when I met Simone, my roommate. We were working with uh, street kids um, and just starting to hear the stories of, of girls and boys um, living on the streets. And that then escalated to an internship in Cambodia and Thailand and being exposed to it there. And I started to see what it was and how it looked and I realized that it also was happening around me here in Houston. I grew up in the inner city Houston um, with a lot of Hispanics and immigrants um, and starting to see the resemblance from Cambodia and Brazil here in my, in my neighborhood um, in Houston. So naturally, um, I was actually studying photojournalism in, in Austin and after my trip in Cambodia, I switched to social work because I felt that God was calling me towards, towards that. Amazing. So why do you think that you actually had to go and work in this field? Why, why did you have to take the path that you're taking right now? I'm not saying because you're saying this, this is what you're doing until your dying day. But why are you doing this and why couldn't you just um, donate to it financially and be okay with that? Um, I think when it, when it started to hit home, um, I did an internship in Austin in working with victims. And the way we work is once they're identified or rescued, the agencies then help and provide aftercare services. So emergency housing, counseling, um, being a support for them and being family to them. Um, so I started to hear the stories of these women and started to hear them um, saying where they were trafficked from and they were my streets in, in North Houston. Um, and once I started to work with them, I realized that they were just like me, um, my people. And when I was just loving on them and doing what I know how to do as a professional, that's when I first felt alive. I felt like this was where God wanted me. It's when I started to feel closer to God and I could see their eyes and I could see God. And it was the same feeling that I had when I was in Brazil working with street, street kids and in Cambodia that same look in their eyes was, was the look of God. Um, and that's 
the feeling I get every day when I look into their eyes is when I feel closest to God and when I'm, I'm most dependent of him. Um, and yeah. That is amazing. Okay, so I have some more thoughts, but let's just thank you, Rachel, so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Now, did you notice, for, for Rachel, at no point did she come up and claim to be a superhero Christian, and nor did she claim that she's got this all figured out. But instead, she does know who God is. She has seen what he has done, and out of who God has made her to be, she has chosen to live into God's call in this moment. Now, Rachel and Simone both work for the Y and are doing a necessary work here in Houston. Human trafficking is full-on atrocious, and we as believers must do everything we can to stand against it. So uh, you might be saying, okay, I, I don't think I can quit my job and go and do what Rachel's doing right now. Or even as you're, we're talking about this, uh, experiencing peace, uh, living a passionate life. It, please don't hear, if you want to experience a passionate life, go and work at the Y. Like, that's how you're going to find peace. You just need to go and do exactly what she's doing. No, let me take a step back and say, God has called each of you to something. He has called each of you to something. And he has worked in your life to be able to express the newness of God through his kingdom where you are. Now, where you are, you can still impact human trafficking. You can still help prevent it. Step one of helping prevent human trafficking, don't look at porn. Seriously. With every click, with every view, with every search in Google or whatever search engine you use, you are telling the people on the other end, I want more of this. And so they go and get it. Stop looking at porn. And that will help curtail the need for human trafficking. The second thing that we can do, volunteer. I know that we have the Freedom Church Alliance. There's also United Against Human Trafficking here in Houston. You can volunteer with these agencies. Actually, Rachel can teach. She has clinics that she can walk us through to help us, the people who aren't doing this for a job, to see it, to spot it, and stop it where we are. And the third thing, we can actually join up financially. Uh, later this week when we send out our Neartown email, we'll provide some links about how you can get involved on a normal day-to-day basis. But like I said, we don't all have to go and fight against human trafficking to experience peace as a passionate person. It's only one area. We've all been called to be passionate. What I want us to do today is ask God, what do you want me to be passionate about? As we are growing towards him and he wants us to be passionate in him, what is something that is preventing us, the old sin life, a habitual sin that is standing in the way of embracing the life and the newness that God is working out in us? What is that? And maybe there's something that God has called you to For Rachel, it's standing against human trafficking. What is it for you in your life that God has made you passionate about and that you can get behind? Using who you are in Christ to be a new person, 
a new creation in his kingdom. What is he doing in you? God has made us to think in Christ, to think, feel, and act like Jesus. He wants us to think, to feel, and to act like Jesus where we work, where we live, and where we play. That's what his goal is for us. Grace-fueled obedience is passionate, gospel-filled living. Grace-fueled obedience is passionate, gospel-filled living. If we've been going through this passage, and, and through listening, you felt convicted, something kind of hurt inside, it didn't sit right as I talked, don't leave in anguish. I don't want any of us to leave in anguish. This passage isn't here for any of us to make us just feel bad. It's to point us all to a Savior, all of us, to our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one that we all need because we're all broken. We're all desperate. We need forgiveness. He calls us to repent, to turn away from that filthy, rampant wickedness, as James says, and he wants us stop living like we used to. He calls us through his spirit, through his spirit, to confess our sins, accept his grace, accept his forgiveness, and live into that great goodness of the gospel that tells us that Jesus has paid our price and we are forever free from the sin that enslaved us. Now, the other truth is, like I said earlier, walking away from sin, it's not that easy. It's hard, and we all need help. Every single person in here, sin is difficult to fight, and we all need help. Here at Neartown, we have things called loop groups. They meet during the week. And I want to invite all of us to join one, to get in one, because when we are in those and we are in the midst of struggling, we can lean on our brothers and sisters. We can be held accountable. People are going to ask us sometimes the difficult question, how are you doing with this? And they are going to ask us those questions and hold us to the standard that we want to now live into as new creatures in Christ. If you want part of that in your life, Grab that connection card, write LG in big letters. Put your name and your contact info. Put it in the blue box in the back. I'll get in contact with you this week. I don't want any of us to leave here feeling that, well, I know I have sin. I don't know how to deal with it, and he gave me no handles. Turn to Jesus and turn to each other. And I want to help you do that. We as Neartown want to help you grow and grow in that newness that Christ has laid out for you. We can live a new life. We can live in a new way. One that's life-giving and it brings wholeness. One that brings peace as we live passionately in Jesus. Would you bow with me? Lord, I thank you so much. You are the good creator. You are the one who has saved us. You have called us to so much more than we want for ourselves Spirit, I ask for your peace. I ask for your peace as we pursue you. And Lord, I ask for unrest as we embrace things that are against what you want, things that are killing us.
things that are breaking us down. Lord, give us the strength to run towards you. Thank you for your grace that this is not on our effort, but this is wholly on yours. We trust you in all things. In your name we pray.